0: Welcome to this episode of the Oxford Fantasy Podcast. I'm Dr. Caroline Batten, and I am here today with fantasy author Catherine Langrish to talk about her new book, From Spare Oom to Wardrobe, Travels in Narnia with My Nine-Year-Old Self. Uh, Catherine, welcome. It's so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, So this is a really uh, sort of thoughtful uh, and, and generous book about uh the narnia chronicles and i suppose just to sort of um start out what sort of when you set out to write this book what did you envision it doing what sort of what's the job of the book
1: how, how would you describe it to readers i think the the genesis of the book was my memories coming back to me of how much i adored these books when i was a child um, and wondering whether I would feel the same way about them if I read them as an adult after a gap of at least 20 years. I had read them to my own children when they were 10 or 11. Um, But not, you know, there'd been a couple of decades past since then. And um, I have a lot of children's books. I write children's books. Um, I own, still own most of the children's books that I loved as a child. In fact, some of them are on the bookshelves there behind me um and i often reread them but these banania books i had not actually gone back to for a couple of decades and i thought well why um why am i not tempted to go back to them and what would i think about them if i read them now so over a period of about 18 months i i was rereading them and making notes and memories of of my childhood self's opinions and passion and just genuine adoration of these books came flooding back so clearly that I realised the book had to be a conversation, if you like, between me and the little girl I used to be. And so that's really where the book comes from. Um, Some of it's, a lot of it is, as an adult, I can see a, a lot of interesting stuff about where Lewis drew his inspirations from. And the fact that he was a professor of Renaissance and medieval literature um, is very, very apparent as you know, as an adult who who studied medieval and renaissance literature. Um, and that's all fascinating. I think it gets missed because a lot of people think Narnia equals Christian symbolism. And that's there, of course, but there's so much else. Um, and philosophy, Plato, Neoplatonism, all sorts of things. Other children's books, Lewis Carroll, George MacDonald, fairy tales, it goes on and on and on. A lot of that I wouldn't have spotted or cared about when I was nine years old. Um, And some of the things that I loved about the books still work for me, they really do. And then one or two things I lift an eyebrow at now, but I know that my nine-year-old would have gone. Don't be so silly. This is perfectly right. You know, this is this is the way. Of course, of course, Jill used to sort to beat up the bullies at the end of the silver chair because they were horrible. <laughs> and um, you know, now I think mm, I'm not so sure about that. So that that was where it was coming from. It's it's a conversation between me and and the child who read those books a long time ago in the 1960s. Mm-hmm.
0: So what were the moments that sort of jumped out to you when you were rereading as, as things that, that sort of still moved you that were still powerful and important and why those particular moments?
1: Well, I mean, almost everything that seriously moved me as a child still, I think everything, still does. Um, uh, Lewis is a remarkable writer. There's no question about it. Um, so, of course, um, Asin's death in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which I was not expecting. Um I didn't clock at all that um, that Aslan had anything to do with Jesus. I still didn't clock that even after he'd come back to life. Even though I knew the story perfectly well of, of Jesus' passion, it didn't occur to me that they were the same, there was anything similar about them. And in fact, in some ways, you can see that as an adult, but as a child, it's not the same. Um, a lot of people talk about the Narnia stories as allegories, and they really aren't. There isn't there isn't really that one-on-one correspondence. And um, I don't think Lewis was doing it for that reason either. He he wrote in one of his essays that um, as a child, he'd found it difficult to feel as one was told one ought to feel about the death of Jesus. And he'd already had these pictures in his head, as he said, of, of, of a wonderful lion. He'd been dreaming of lions, he said, and of a fawn walking through a snowy wood, carrying an umbrella with parcels under his arm. And it sort of the the, the things came together for him and he realized that he could he could write a fairy tale which i think might i think possibly the idea was it might help children to understand the emotions that adults might feel about reading the gospels Mm -hmm. but i don't think he ever saw it necessarily as as a sort of a map you know this is jesus this is I, I just I just don't see it that way. I mean, I think he did. He contradicted himself quite a lot in his letters. Uh, you know, he sometimes he said one thing, sometimes he said the other. And I think you can forgive him for that because people were pressing him and he had this reputation as a Christian apologist.
0: No, but it's, I, I, I think that the, the Aslan moment is actually quite a pivotal one in the sort of series as a whole because it's incredibly emotionally powerful. Mm. I remember reading it as a kid and being deeply moved by it. And I mm. didn't realize that it had anything to do with Jesus either and actually when i when I found out uh how similar uh, we we won't use the word allegory, um, but you know how similar and parallel the stories run i was mm. I was miffed, I felt a bit cheated. it was like mm. someone had been trying to sneak me broccoli into what I thought <laughs> was a delicious dessert yes, um, <laughs> in in the book also, you say that you know Lewis felt sort of similarly disparagingly about that kind of allegory that, you know, that it takes the meaning out of things. And that's very much, that's very much how I felt when I encountered it. But he seems, mm. he seems perhaps to be trying to do something different and better that I didn't quite access as an obnoxious 10 year old who felt
1: poorly about Christian allegory. I, I felt the same way when I got to the end of The Last Battle where it, it becomes very explicit. Um, and there's this moment where you know he gets a capital letter and it's he did not look to them like a lion anymore. It's like, what? What? Aslan, where's Aslan? I want Aslan back. Um, so children I think probably fare better in Narnia if these parallels don't really occur to them or or are left by adults for the children to find out for themselves. If 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 your parents suddenly start telling you this, then I think it can not necessarily for everybody, but it can spoil the story. Although I know one, I have one friend who told me that when she, um, she, she was probably cleverer than I was. She, she picked up on the parallel between um, the crucifixion and resurrection and the Aslan story when she first read it, she said, aged about 10. And she said, it was like a, it was like a, a door opening for her because she realized that books could have more than one meaning. And I thought that's a very, very impressive thing to realize when you're that age. I certainly didn't. Um, but I mean, there are so many other very, very moving moments. Um, one of the ones that still leaves me with a lump in my throat is when Cheep goes over the wave at the end of the world in the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then it says, and nobody can say from this date, you know, to that, whether nobody can, nobody can ever say that they've seen him again. But, you know, we have to believe that he, he landed in Aslan's country, which was his sole desire and um that's that's a very emotional moment because you can see that this is a little animal who's who's got such great courage and purity of heart and he's he's Narnia's galahad um and he's going to find the divine um and he's so brave that he's joyful about it and it it might be the end of him you know but uh, yeah it's, it's remarkable i think it's remarkable i think that book teaches more than any church service I've ever been to about the nature of holiness and what it might actually feel like to meet or, or to encounter something holy um, without being remotely preachy about it. I think it works very very well. Another another wonderful moment is when Aslan brings the dead King Caspian back to life at the end of the silver chair. Oh and the moment when Rilian is, is Prince really Rillian is reunited with his father, whom he hasn't seen for what 10 years, and, and his father's on his deathbed. And was, even as a child, I was like, oh no, you know, they only just got to meet and now he's dead. And then, of course, Aslan sort of blows away the scene in Narnia, and they're back on the children and the dead Caspian are back on Aslan's holy mountain. And, and then there's this, I suppose, quite difficult moment where Eustace is asked by Aslan to pluck an enormous thorn from a, stick, a, a thicket, and it's a foot-long thorn, and drive it into his paw. And Eustace doesn't want to, but he does it, and this great drop of blood splashes down. And I mean, you could—is that suitable for a children's book? I—I—I I, I didn't mind it. I, it made sense to me. It, it was better than waving a magic wand and saying, you know, ding dong, you're you're better, you know, and bringing you back to life. It—it it sort of went to sort of show. The cost and the pain of, of doing something so amazing, if it were to be possible. So I think he had an enormous grasp of emotional truth. I think he shows you the cost of things. Yeah.
0: Well, and children are often aware of that cost, right? Children are very much aware of sort of the darkness in the world, even if, if they don't, you know, sort of grasp necessarily the way that darkness always manifests. But when you're a child, you know, there are fairies at the bottom of the garden and there's also a monster under the bed. Yes. Children are aware of death, of pain. They are aware of the cost of things. Mm. They're aware of danger in the world. Mm. And the best children's
1: book authors, you know, speak to that directly. You're right though. I mean, the, the, again, in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's that moment where um, they come to the dark island which you never see. And Pauline Baines's illustration shows this wonderful cross-hatched darkness that the ship is sailing into with the stern lantern just showing. And it's absolutely terrifying. All the more so because it turns out to be you never actually reach land. Um, we never see an island. It's just a darkness. Um, we can believe that perhaps there's an island there. But I think even as a child, I realised that it wasn't a real place. Because, they pick up this mad swimmer who's, I mean, here, here all the, um, the resonances are from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, the, the, you know, the, the swimmer um, is crazy um, because he's been left in this terrible place. He can't believe that he's ever going to be uh, rescued or able to get out of it, which is the predicament really the, the, the emotional and mental predicament of the ancient Mariner. Um, and he says, this is the island where dreams come true, not night, not daydreams, dreams. And then we get these surreal images, um, conjured up by the sailors who are suddenly thinking of their most terrifying and horrible nightmares. Can you hear the sound of like a a huge pair of scissors opening and shutting the gongs are beginning. I knew they would. it, It gives me a shiver even now. Um, And all children, I'm sure, know what it's like to have terrible dreams. I certainly did. And we know the power of those dreadful dreams. And you don't have to, at that point in your life, think, but this is also a metaphor for deep depression or mental illness. You just know that this is a terrifying mental place to be. And thank heavens when they get out of it. And, of course, the bird which brings the light um, is an albatross, which, again, straight from the ancient mariner. You don't, have to, you don't have to recognize any of these things. You don't have to know where they come from for them to work. They work. Um, but it's such a rich tapestry that she weaves. Really amazing.
0: I yeah, because there are, there are ancient Mariner references sort of very explicitly, but also, you know, this is the Odyssey, right? This is the sirens and yes. the lotus eaters. And it's also very medieval, in its resonances yes. as so much of this is, you know, the, the bit where, where Reepicheep sails off and say, you know, no one knows for sure where he went. That's mm. profoundly medieval, right? That shows up in so much um, medieval Christian poetry. There's actually a bit in an old English poem called Maxim's that says that God alone knows uh, what happens after death and, and we will never be able to access it. It will never be, be available. Mm.
1: Yeah, and the end of Beowulf, where um, you know, the ship goes off and no man knows what who unloaded that cargo. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit more about the sort of
0: influences you discovered in Lewis on your on your reread? You mentioned Plato as well.
1: Yes, well, I mean, Plato was definitely one of Lewis's touchstones, wasn't he? He 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 crops he up an awful lot. And there's that tag, um, that the professor keeps saying, all oh, in Plato, it's all in Plato. What do they teach them in these schools? Uh, actually, Lewis never has a word to he didn't like schools, and, and he never, he never, he never says anything good about schools. All the schools are terrible. There's nothing they can do that's right. To go from the childish to the to the non-childish, um, there was um, a, a connective imagery all the way through Lewis's work, particularly obvious in the Narnia stories, but but um, quite apparent in everything else he wrote, including literary criticism and Christian apologetics, of vast rambling houses or labyrinthine palaces where you come across finally um, a particular room. It might be a room containing a secret. The secret may be horrifying, the secret may be wonderful. Um, and that came a lot, came up a lot. And then I thought to myself, well, of course, you get you get. Fairy tales like The Sleeping Beauty, where the Sleeping Beauty climbs a winding stair to a a turret room that she didn't know existed and meets um, the fairy spinning and pricks her finger on the spindle. Now, George MacDonald, who was one of um, Lewis's models and uh, and one of his great loves, the books of of George MacDonald, um, as I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, um, showed him. set set his feet on the way, I think, to to finally becoming a Christian or accepting Christianity early early on. Um, And of course, in The Princess and the Goblin, you have the little Princess Irene, who um, once again can't go playing outside because it's a a rainy day, and she goes exploring in her palace, in the castle in which she lives, leaving her nurse behind. um, She explores um, upstairs, through rambling, up, up into rambling garrets and attics, um, past all sorts of doorways where it was horrific. You know, she wondered what could be behind all those shut doors. Um, Lucy thinks that when she penetrates the magician's house in, in the void of the dawn shredder, um, behind any of the doors on the passage um, might be the magician invisible or even dead. What, what might be there? But, that there's this sort of exploration and, and terror. And Irene, of course, gets up into the the topmost turret and finds a room in which her great-great-great-great ever-so-many-great-grandmother is sitting, spinning, where you have, of course, George MacDonald is is channelling the Sleeping Beauty there. Um, And this grandmother is um, a very serene and semi-divine presence. Um, She's ageless. She can manifest as a a young woman, a beautiful queen, um, an old grandmother, and she has these powers. And one of the things she tells um, Irene is that when she returns downstairs, people will tell her that she, the grandmother, doesn't exist. But Irene must hold to her knowledge that she does. And of course, Irene runs back downstairs and tells her nurse, and her nurse is angry and says, Princess... Lots of princesses make up stories, but I never heard of one that insisted that they were true. And so Irene gets into trouble for telling fibs in the same way that Lucy gets into trouble with her brothers and sisters, because she said, she's been to Narnia, she's seen a porn, she's been there for ages. And they say, you've just come out of the wardrobe. You've only been gone a few minutes and of course you've made it up. So that was a very close parallel. And you can find more things like that running through the book. Um, The Wood Between the Worlds in um, The Magician's Nephew, is very reminiscent to me of um, a bit in Alice Through the Looking Glass, where Alice comes across a, a wood where things have no names. And she enters this wood and immediately she can't remember who she is. She doesn't know the name of anything. Um, and she just wanders, it's not a terrifying place, but she sort of wanders through it, having lost all her memories and all her knowledge of anything really, and comes across a little fawn. And um, she doesn't know it's a fawn, she can't remember the name of it. And the fawn, who's a talking animal, notably, um, doesn't know she's a human child. And they they walk through the wood together very happily until they come to the outside. And um, then the fawn remembers that, oh, you're a human child and I'm in danger and springs away. And there's this kind of combination of Edenic innocence, but also there's a sort of terror to it, too, because what does it mean to have forgotten who you are and to have forgotten your own name? And of course, the same, the same soporific danger can be found in the Wood Between the Worlds. Um, it's a place where you could easily just drift off and never recover yourself. So I don't necessarily think that Lyris was deliberately channeling that, but he would have read those books. And so I think these things sometimes spring up from somewhere deep inside you. Um, So that's on the children's side. And then on the um, on the sort of grown up Lewis side and the grown up me side, um, all sorts of things. Um, So at the end of. um, At the end of the last battle, there's a great deal of John Bunyan of the Pilgrim's Progress. There's a very strong uh, resemblance um, in in, in the last few pages where they're going further up and further in. Um, you could almost map it onto Christiana um, arriving uh, in heaven, having crossed the river at the end of um, her half of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, it's very, very similar about their friends coming out to meet them and, and sort of traveling very fast upwards um, to the Holy Mountain. And, um, and enormous amounts of Milton. Um, so, uh, Paradise Lost figures. Um, very, very strongly and obviously um, certainly in the magician 's nephew, um, where the description of the the steep hill with crowned with a with a green wall and and a gate and an orchard in which the tree of life grows, to which Diggory and Polly have to fly on fledge the flying horse to bring back the apple which will restore. Um, well, protect Anania from the evil that Diggory's brought in by um, awakening the um, the evil Queen Jadis in the city of Chan, is modelled very, very clearly on um, the description of Eden in Paradise Lost, where Satan arrives, and um, the, the description is, is very, very similar, and, and Satan, like the witch, um you'll remember there's a a quatrain which is written on the gates that the children read and it says come in by the gold gates or not at all um take of take of my fruit for others or um anyway basically you've got to take take the fruit for other people not for yourself and uh and you mustn't um you mustn't climb the wall you've got to come in through the gates the proper way and uh, of course the witch has climbed the wall and stolen an apple for herself Um, which means that she's now sort of effectively immortal but she's also it's not doing her any good Um, she looks worse than she's ever done before Um, and that's what satan does in paradise lost he doesn't come in through the gate he leaps over the wall at one bound and then settles in the in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the shape of a black cormorant So um, there's a lot going on there. There's also a bird in the tree um, above Diggory, where he's he's plucking the apple of the tree of life, and it's not in this case an evil bird. It's a bird that's a guardian um, that's sort of keeping an eye on him, and he realizes that he'd better not be tempted to take that second apple. It it really it's it's very fascinating. There's there's so much more that I could say and, and did say in the book, but I'm sure. i could continue to find further references it's almost endless he was so well read
0: yeah well and so many of these connections also that you've made in the book uh, were not ones that i'd ever noticed and i sort of read and thought oh of course of course (laughs) this is paradise lost how could it be anything else but reinterpreted through lewis's particular Mm. lens he's sort of weaving together all of these literary references to sort of build something that's, um, where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Um, which leads to his sort of famously, uh, kind of patchwork secondary world, right? That draws on all of these different sources. Um, so how would you describe Lewis's secondary world In, in the book? You say that, um, to uh, compare it with a closed system like Middle Earth is to miss the point. Um, so, what is the point? How is his
1: secondary world working? Well, I think it works because I think it works for two reasons. One is because a lot of these things are things that children have already come across, or at least children of my generation have already come across. Most of us have been exposed to the Greek myths, for example, in some. Rewritten form. Um, most of us had probably been given fairy tales, Hans Andersen's fairy tales, for example, in which we would have met the Snow Queen. And so when we meet um, the, the White Witch, she's obviously a horse from the same stable. Um, I don't think that I would have read um, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe and thought, oh, um, the White Witch is like the Snow Queen but I would not have made that connection. Um, But I would have recognized her as a type as I met before, I think, without necessarily making that connection. I I think I wrote in the book that um, children tend to see the differences where adults see the similarities. And I think that's just a, a difference in the way children read and the way adults read. We tend to be sort of looking for, oh, where did you get this from? This was what I was doing when I was reading the books for the second time. Oh, look, I can see how similar that is to this. Whereas the child just this is a story and it's a different story from other stories. So I'm going to read this story. But nevertheless, we we would have kept stumbling upon things that seemed familiar. And children don't really mind if you jumble things up. I personally didn't mind that there was Father Christmas in the book. Um, It was Christmas. Christmas was going to happen. And they hadn't had Christmas in Narnia for a hundred years. And what better way to have it than with Father Christmas? Um, He certainly couldn't have it with the baby Jesus. So that was one get out. And I think, you know, when you've come up with such a wonderful phrase as always winter and never Christmas, it's a very, very difficult thing to get rid of. He would have wanted to go with that. Um, And I think it's also, it's just done with a lot of love. He liked all these things still, he still read fairy tales. You know, he said when he was 10 years old, he, he pretended he would read fairy tales, effectively covering the book with brown paper. He didn't put it like that, but you know, he wouldn't want other boys to know he was reading fairy tales, but now he was a man. He read them perfectly happily. Um, and, and talked about, you know, just because I like beer, it doesn't mean I don't like honey. So you can like all these things. Um, and so we still liked them. Um, and he just threw them all into Narnia and stirred it up. And what you get is Narnia. Um, and it's a child's paradise. It's, I don't think it's not really meant to be a serious secondary creation. You know, he wasn't really, I don't even think he was that interested in the map. I would be very interested to know if Lewis ever drew a map of Narnia himself or whether that was all left to Pauline Baines. I have no clue, but I'm pretty sure that in parts of the last battle, he lost track of where things were in relation to other things. So in that sense, I don't think he he was setting out to make this a consistent world, and it's not. Um, But it still felt so real to me that I could almost not bear to think that it wasn't real. I wanted it to be real so much and so badly, and so many children of my age felt that way, and perhaps some still do. I, you know, Brian Sibley wrote in his wonderful foreword to my book that he actually tried sitting in his parents' wardrobe, um, waited waited till they'd gone out, and then squashed himself in his parents' wardrobe and sat there hoping that the backboard would dissolve and he'd find himself in Narnia. I never tried that, but I can quite easily imagine doing it. Narnia is permeable. We know that from the stories, children from our world can get there. And if we can get there, I don't really see why everything else shouldn't be able to get there as well. Um, so it works for me. It it worked then and it still works for me in that sense. I think you just got to give up the idea that it's a place like Earthsea or or Middle Earth. It's not that sort of place. Mm -hmm. It's more of a fairy. It's almost a fairy land, but not quite.
0: Yeah, I like very much this point about Narnia being permeable to us, to our world, not only to children who might come through, but also maybe to ideas, um, mm. to images, to figures like Father Christmas that could kind of sort of slip between the boundaries of worlds. Um, yes, yes. That is, again, a very like thoughtful and generous reading
1: of Narnia. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, well, I felt generous towards it. I mean, I don't... There are points at which I sort of part company with the opinions I held as a child. I don't think he's fair to his brown-skinned people. Um, to effectively cast an entire race of people as at best deluded, and at worst worshipers of a, of a fearsome demon, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Because he's very good on, on, on children, uh, on girls and on women, I think, Um, some disagree. But um, when I was a little girl, um, I was just so happy to come across such strong female characters as Lucy and Aravis and Jill and Polly, who were all quite different. They're better characterized than any of the boys apart from Eustace. They're very strong people and you can tell that Lewis likes them. He writes better about girls than he does about boys, I think, with the exception of Eustace and um, Diggory, who I think are both him. Mm-hmm. I think Diggory is very obviously him as uh, the little boy who's lost his mother and desperately, desperately wants to, to save her. But Eustace is also, I think, Lewis. And I would never have... I didn't, I didn't spot this until fairly recently. I think um, he didn't enjoy school. Um, He was very bright and very smart. And Eustace is actually one of the brightest and smartest and most intellectual of the boys. He does ask questions about himself and his predicaments. And then, of course, Lewis, um, you know, gives Eustace this wonderful journey where he he is, in fact, converted into a very different sort of person through the grace of Aslan. So, yeah, I, I think those two boys have got a lot of Lewis in them. Mm. Whereas I think that Peter and Edmund are basically stock heroes. You know, stock hero boys from fairly dull sort of, you know, they're all called Frank or Jack or or, you know, and, and and that sort of boy. Um, I think, you know, you just know that they're just going to be decent chaps. Edmund, of course, no, I should I should take that back about Edmund, because of course he does start off again, a very bad-tempered, grumpy, difficult little boy. But as soon as he's become as soon as he's got his, his, his um, conversion, if you like, then he, 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 he does become a bit more boring. It's definitely Eustace who's more interesting. So perhaps the boys are, are most interesting when they're being difficult, um, but the girls are interesting all the way through, including Susan, I think.
0: I think also Lewis is good at
1: occasionally
0: reminding us that children don't behave badly because they're bad hmm. to the core. Children behave badly when something is wrong, when they're afraid of something, when they've gone to a horrid school and everything's started to go wrong for them after that, right? He you know he, he sort of slides in these little reminders. Um yeah. but I think we probably need to circle back to the Calorman and to the sort of infamous problem of Susan. Um you say in the books, you know, that there are a lot of unexamined judgments in Mm. lewis um and you note throughout your work the really very blatant racism in the books um as blatant honestly as the racism in in tolkien especially when we hear about the the men of the south right these Mm. sort of caricatures of people of color that are really very offensive genuinely racist and and then you know there's the whole susan doesn't go to heaven because she likes lipstick and nylons, which as you say is very silly, is is profoundly sort of out of step with other things that Lewis has written about how you get to Aslan's country, how you get to go to heaven, Mm. and those little moments like battles are ugly when women fight. Mm. What do we do with them? How do we process and, and respond? to them you know these are the sorts of moments in the books that that put me off mm, mm, when i was a kid mm. and so how do we how do we deal with his own opinions creeping into his world in a very damning fashion
1: i actually did a twitter poll it was very sort of you know it was very rough but i asked i asked people whether they had children who read the Narnia books or had them read to them and effectively it turned out from you know I suppose I probably had about 30 to 40 replies that most ch- current children most most of today's children encounter the 9 books when they are read to them by an adult quite often in school quite often in classroom situations and the teachers would say they the children really enjoyed them um, but then again it's quite often only The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe um, then you found that some teachers would say, well, some children went on to read another, another of the books and a very small number, as far as the teachers were aware, went on to read the whole series. So how many children are reading these stories independently? I'm not certain. If you're reading one of these books to a child, um, I think probably the best way to do it is not so much to sort of censor it as to sort of stop and say, well, what do you think about that? Um, do you think that sounds fair? or perhaps just not read the most problematic books to them at all. You know, I personally wouldn't have read, I don't think I ever read The Last Battle to my children because it's such a difficult book to read. It's, if you're a parent, the best thing is to be aware of what they're reading and perhaps actually intervene and say, by the way, there's going to be some things in this story that we don't really agree with. If you come across them, let's talk about them. But if you're talking about how do we deal with them now as adults, looking at the books as adults and judging them as adults tend to do, um, I think the only thing to do is to, is to say what we think. Um, and um, that's what I tried to do in the book. Um, I don't think it's excusable. It's, I don't think it's excusable even by saying, well, yes, but that was then. And this is now, because as I say, I, I don't think it was excusable then. I was contacted by um, um, a poet, um, Rani Capaldeo, who said to me that when, um, when, when they were reading these books as a, as, as a child, um, they were an, in Oxford, living in Oxford, there were plenty of um, Indian families and West Indian families in Oxford. They might've been invisible to the likes of, of Lewis, but uh, they were there and that uh, when they read the book as, as a child they were uh, they were rather distressed by the um, by the, the depiction of the, of Calum and society as this slave-owning there's absolutely nothing good to be said about it uh, ruled by tyrants and despots human sacrifice for heaven's sakes how did he have the cheek it's very 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 problematic there's no question about it
0: well, and it has strong echoes also of the way that medieval crusade romances depicted people living in the Middle East. Uh, you know, this idea of Saracens with heavy air quotes as a, as a contemporary racial and religious term hmm. where they conflated sort of intentionally Muslims with biblical pagans who worship, you know, Baal or uh, any of the Greek God, um, yeah. there's this sort of really uncomfortable dodge they try to do to to render people living in
1: the Middle East more different. Yeah, to, to literally demonize it. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? But um, in all the areas of the books, in all the areas of Narnia of the Narnian world, um, where you come across regimes or or places that are not as as Narnia would wish them to be there is a lack there is a lack of magic um, and so Calamon is the same there's no magic in Calamon um, there's no magic under Miraz and there's no magic on the Lone Islands um, and yet and yet with Miraz you, you do get this inkling into why people might become angry and and why people might end up being your enemies um, because they've been oppressed um so it wasn't that you didn't have a clue
0: so it requires you know quite a bit of sort of critical awareness mm. to navigate these blank spots and and these blind spots really how did you sort of write back to lewis what 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 was that process like for you as as a child and and what was the result like
1: <laughs> they're not very good <laughs> i mean i was only 9 um they were heavily derivative. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I sort of stole whole phrases and, um, my character's always saying things like with a goodwill, sire and, uh, by Aslan's mane or by the lion's mane. And, uh, and then there was a, I think there was a little tag, which I picked up and used about three times, um, where I think there's a point where, and I can't remember where it is. It's probably the Voyage of the Dawnshedder where, um, they've, they've sort of, set off again and, and, uh, and she was a live ship once more, I used that about three times, she was a live ship once more, so I'm definitely parroting a great deal. As it went on it got less like Lewis um, and more like me, whatever that was. I was happier with comedy than I was with high drama, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Well okay, how about a poem called The Lapsed Bear of Storm Nest"? okay? And The Lapsed Bear of Stormness is um, mentioned at the end of The Horse and His Boy because we hear about the deeds of Corin Thunderfist, who is the um, rather obnoxious younger brother of Shasta. So anyway, um, here we go. Um, I hope you'll appreciate my rhyming. High in the windy mountains and among the rocky crags, where travellers grew less and less, there lived The Lapsed Bear of Stormness, it begins. Many knights with him did battle, but he slaughtered them like cattle. Corin Thunderfist decided this must stop. So on one winter day, he climbed up the northern side and he shouted far and wide, Bear, you're a coward, but I'll search for you till May, till the people cut the hay and I'll box you to the ground and I'll still be safe and sound. So you better come out now and fight me. I'm not quite sure where this is going because it's a long time since I read it. The bear came shambling out and Corin gave a shout. The great match came about, and then I round it up quite quickly. Prince Corin boxed the bear around for 33 rounds without a doubt. When he had finished, it couldn't see, and this is the end of my versus three. So I think you can see that Lewis wasn't in any serious danger of competition for me aged nine. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I like
0: also that Corin's speech to the bear is longer than his fight with the bear in the poem. Absolutely, that seems- That seems correctly poetic to me. Thank you, yeah, well, there you go. Yes, well, there you go, I suppose so. (laughs) However, I did
1: enjoy doing it
0: and... Well, it reminds me very much of the importance of fan fiction
1: in the Mm. way that
0: we engage with authors, right, because so much fan fiction is written to remedy what the writers feel is sort of a gap, or something left to be said, left to be explored, in a work that has meant something to them. And so it's a way of kind of talking back to an author and saying, I'd do it differently, or I want to spend more time here, or I would like to add this bit of myself
1: into this world. A lot of writers of fan fiction seem to address the problem of Susan. Um, Since I've published this book, I've had at least three um, stories um, sent to me, and some of them are really rather good, um, in which Susan deals with the fact that her entire family has been wiped out in a railway accident, grows up, does amazing things as she grows up, and, uh, you know, and eventually gets to Narnia her own way, um, or, or gets to... The heavenly Narnia in her own way, but very much on her own terms, and I, I, I rather like that. I think I think there is that. You know, when Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings film came out, weren't we glad to see um, Arwen at the beginning taking the the place of Glorfindel because you know she's riding a horse, she's 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 doing something useful. <laughs> she's rescuing Frodo. It's wonderful, um, and it was rather disappointing when. For the rest of the film, all she does is wear a white dress and look sad. You know, um. <laughs> much more in line um, with the books, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Well, at least there was Owen. But there again, you
0: know, you've got you've got these men of their time. And there is sort of a, a pervasive sense, sometimes, especially when poor Susan is concerned, mm. that she's not she's not ever being thought of first.
1: I mean, I think. I don't know whether he saw this coming, um, but in The Voyage of the John she doesn't appear, except she's mentioned twice. And the first time is when it's explained why um, her younger brother and sister are at their aunt and uncle's house at all, Eustace's house. And that is because Peter is swatting for an exam with the professor, um, and Susan has been taken on a trip to the United States because her mother thought she would get more out of it than the younger ones, and then he adds, um she wasn't very she was considered the pretty one of the family she wasn't very good at schoolwork and was very old for her age and that doesn't mean she was old for her age in a in a wise way or a or a sort of socially accomplished way really it just means sexually precocious you know interested in boys that that was the code back then that was what it meant so what you know um and i thought that's already getting a dig into Susan and then towards the end of the book we meet her we don't even meet her but it's when Lucy's looking at the spell to make beautiful her that speaketh it beyond the lot of mortals and is tempted to do so again because we realize and this is I think rather good um because Lucy isn't such a goody goody we realize that Lucy is jealous of Susan's looks we've never been told this but it now becomes apparent and why not and so she realizes that if she could say this spell, she would then be the beautiful one. And of course, the magical book shows her living pictures of what would happen. And first, she's beautiful with this radiant face in these little pictures in the margin of the book. And Narnia is being laid waste as knights battle for her hand in marriage. And then she's back in England. And Susan has come back from holiday. And Susan looks just like the old Susan, but with a nasty expression on her face because she's jealous. Lucy and her new beauty and Lucy says I will say the spell I don't care I will and then Aslan appears on the page and growls at her and that's the reason why she doesn't say the spell not because she's got self-control not to say it but because she gets warned by Aslan um, who does that quite a lot in in this book but the effect of that in a way is still to sort of semi-demonize Susan because even though we know this isn't something that's truly happened even in the context of the book it's a glimpse of Susan behaving in a way that's sort of antithetic and we're just left with that impression we don't get to meet Susan ever again and the way that her family talk about her when they're effectively in heaven and I think the pilgrim's progress has a role to play here because um, there's a bit in the pilgrim's progress where um, it might be ignorance yes um, arrives at the um, the gates of um, heaven and is basically not allowed in because he's not gone the right way, um, and is cast aside and and sort of thrown back into, into hell. Um, and the narrator says, "Then I saw that there was a way to go to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction." So that's that's a theological point that Bunyan is making in the Pilgrim's Progress, which is effectively to say, "Don't think you can get there except by." the king's highway you've got to follow the rules you've got to read the bible you've got to be in this church and do things in this particular way that is the way to salvation there isn't another way to salvation and and it works in that allegory because we don't have any particular deep you know we don't have any particularly deep connection with with ignorance um it's just an object lesson but i think that lewis was so very much influenced by the pilgrim's progress while he was writing the second half of the last battle it's part of his departure from Narnia, I think. He, it was the last book. Um, it was always going to be the last book. I mean, in, in whatever order he was writing them, this was clearly the last book. And he kind of breaks the world of Narnia open from all the way through it. it you know, it, We, we witness the destruction of Narnia. That, that's what happens. Um, and it's, it's a hard book to
0: read. Yeah, so does this ending where narnia is destroyed death is put forward to us as a happy ending Mm. and poor susan is barred from heaven forever for a perfectly normal embracing of adult life and sexuality does that taint what
1: comes before in the series i don't think it has to The implication is clear that Susan isn't coming to Narnia, um, isn't going to be be coming to heaven, isn't there now. I don't really know what Lewis made of the idea that she's got a whole life to live out. And surely they are now in a timeless, timeless place. And because they're in a timeless place, they're able to meet all the people that we've met in all the books going right back to the creation of Narnia. They go into the paradise uh, at the top of the steep hill And there's even King Frank and Queen Helen, who were the first king and queen of Narnia, the first son of Adam and daughter of Eve to arrive in Narnia and found this line of kings and queens. So all of time is there, all of Narnian time is there in that enclosure. So it's not very obvious whether they're in an eternal place or they're in a place where some sort of time continues to happen. Uh, I don't think he thought that through very well. But Susan hasn't died yet, and I mean Polly seems to suggest that it's Polly really who, 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 into whose mouth is placed the sentence. I think that you know Susan will not get to heaven. It's not made explicit, but it says she says something like um, her uh, her aim has been to run ahead to the silliest time of her life as fast as she can and then stay there as long as she can. Um, and really, Polly's got no right to make. A pronouncement like that, um, she cannot possibly know what Susan is going to do with the rest of her life. So, there is a get out for readers, I think, that we can think actually, we don't have to believe this, we can um, imagine that Susan, other things will happen to Susan in her life, and, and she, will, she will eventually come to heaven. So, she's never explicitly barred, but she's very strongly criticized, and she's certainly not there with them at this point. And we are told that she is no longer a friend of Narnia, which really is a hard thing to hear. When Aslan tells the, the children at the at the end of the the Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe that once a king and queen of Narnia always a king or queen, so I really think she should have a passport back. Does it does it affect the books retrospectively? I I don't think so because you don't have to read the last battle if you don't want to. Actually, <laughs> you, you can. And I've always been an advocate of, um, if you really don't like the ending of something, you can say that the author got it wrong. I, I actually do think that we're, we're allowed in our minds and heads to alter things. One, one way of, of, of protecting yourself from, from, um, Susan's eternal damnation, I think is just to say Lewis got it wrong. So of course she went to heaven in the end, if you want to believe that she came right, you know, and in any case, what was she doing wrong? Really? You know, just being a teenager as far as I can see.
0: Yeah, an important Mm -hmm. lesson in the power of reading against the text.
1: Yes, yes, you can do that, I think it's allowed.
0: Yeah, it's amazing the way that sort of things that are submerged within us bob up into consciousness and into full being when Mm. we're asked to tell stories. The things Mm. that we want to tell stories about Are so very revealing of who we are yeah 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 and that seems like it might be as good a note as any to conclude on thank you so much we've talked a lot and it's been it's been very it's been great deal of fun